This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good morning. Happy Sabbath. It's a privilege to be here with you at GYC. 2012 here in Seattle, Washington. I believe we've been blessed already thus far today. Wes Peppers, Pastor Wes Peppers, I believe, gave us a strong word this morning. I've known Wes for a few years. I had the privilege to attend AVCO with Wes. We sat together in class and then we became outreach partners and it's a privilege to be able to speak here at the same event with Pastor Wes Peppers amongst many others. As we gather together for this service, Acts the Revolution continues. It's my prayer that we will have a true revolution in our hearts and in our lives this morning and throughout this conference. I want to thank those of you who have stopped me in the hallway or in the lifts or in the corridors and said, Brother, I'm praying for you. I appreciate each and every one of those prayers. For I believe it's through prayer that the Holy Spirit's power will come down upon us this morning. And I would like to invite you to bow your heads for another word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we pause for a moment to thank you for bringing each and every one of us here at this point in our lives to worship you. Whether we are here in person or scattered around this globe, we thank you, Lord, that life is in our body and we can praise you this Sabbath morning. As we do so, we ask and pray that your Holy Spirit would come into our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me at this time that you would take hold of me, that the words that are spoken would be your words, that your name would be uplifted and glorified, and that the character of Jesus, our loving Savior, may be seen. And it's in his name we do pray. Amen. How many of you think it is a privilege to be here at GYC? Amen? Amen? I believe God has raised up this movement, and it's a privilege for me to be here. It's my ninth GYC that I've been to in a row. The first one I went to was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I've been to each and every one since then, and it's, it's amazing to see how this movement has grown from what it was back then in the, the second one. I think it was six or seven or eight hundred to being what it is today, thousands of people on site and around the world. I believe God is behind the movement of GYC. And you heard earlier that this local movement that began in California and was just really for the United States of America has now blossomed and grown and it's now a worldwide movement. GYC Europe, I had the privilege to be there this year 
uh, in July where we had over 1,200 young people from around Europe, 30 countries, and not just Europe, but the Middle East and Africa and Asia, 30 countries coming together to hear the Word of God preached. And it was encouraging to see young people going forward for appeals and outreach taking place in the city as God's word was preached. I believe we are living in exciting times. How many of you believe it's a privilege to be a Seventh-day Adventist? Amen. You are a member this morning of the fastest growing Protestant church in the world. And the most widespread Protestant church as well. It is a privilege to be called a Seventh-day Adventist. It's a privilege to be here at GYC. When people ask, you know, I was just in the uh, the lift this morning and coming down and someone said, oh, are you part of the, 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 the Generation Youth Christ? I said, yes, I am. He said, what is it? I said, oh, it's a Seventh-day Adventist youth conference. Are you part of it? He said, no. I said, you should come. He said, ah, I'm here on business. But it was a privilege to be able to stand there and say, I am part of the Adventist church. You may have heard of the old evangelist, the late Joe Cruz. And I heard one story about him where it was once said that when he would be asked, uh, uh, what religion are you, that he would sometimes, you know, straighten his tie and uh, adjust his belt and say, I don't mean to boast. I don't mean to boast, but I am a Seventh-day Adventist. We're blessed to be part of a church where we have the writings of Mrs. White where we have a prophet who wrote things pertinent directly to our time. We are blessed to be living in a time when prophecy is fulfilling before our eyes. You know, when you read the Bible and you read about Daniel and Ezekiel and John the Revelator, you read about men that wrote things in the Bible that are taking place during our day and age. And I believe if those men and women could have lived In another age, they would have said, I want to live in the year 2012 or the year 2013. I would like to live at a time when the events I prophesied are taking place. We are living in exciting times. And in this day and age, God has given us a particular message that we are to preach. It is the three angels' messages. Revelation 14. I've worked in our church as an evangelist. You don't need to turn there. As an evangelist, as a pastor, as a literature evangelist. And it's always a privilege to baptize people into the Seventh-day Adventist church. And we're called to preach the three angels' message. It is a very distinctive message that we are called to preach in this day and age. It's not a soft message, so to speak, but it points out Jesus Christ. And it points out what we need to preach today. First angel's message, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has what? Second angel's message, it says, Babylon has? And the third angel's message says, if any man worships the beast in his image, receives his mark in his right hand or in his forehead. And it concludes in verse 12 where it says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. 
It's our privilege today to be able to understand, study, and preach those three angels' messages. And I'm aware that as you preach the three angels' message, part of the calling of preaching the three angels' message is message number two, where it says Babylon has fallen. And we link this with Revelation 18, where the Bible says Babylon has fallen, come out of her who? My people. It's an honor to be able to preach and call people out of Babylon. Babylon means confusion, representing religious confusion. And the reason we call people out is because it will not give them the correct picture of the character of God and therefore call them out so they can see the character of God clearly. It's not always an easy message to preach. In fact, I've been to places where uh, I was invited to go and preach and do a campaign. And I've sat down in the living room with certain people before and I won't name the place or the country or wherever. But he said, we don't mind you preaching the whole campaign, but please don't preach on the mark of the beast. Please don't preach on Ellen White. Preach everything else except that. I said, with due respect, I cannot limit the message God has given us to bear. And we are called to call people out of Babylon, out of religious confusion. Well, my question to you this morning is, what do we call them into? Calling them out is only half of the commission. We must call them into something. I'm aware in Revelation chapter 12, it says that we are, it says the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. I am aware that as a Seventh-day Adventist church, we are the remnant church, amen? Amen. But I'm also aware that when you rewind in Revelation a few chapters before that, you come to Revelation chapter 3, where we are not the church of Smyrna, we are not the church of Thyatira, we are not the church of Sardis, or even the church of Philadelphia, we are the church of Laodicea. Just think about that for a moment. We call people from Babylon, are you following me? Into Laodicea. We call people from confusion into lethargy. From Babylon to Laodicea. To some of us, that causes a little consternation in the mind. It almost seems like a contradiction of terms. And it poses us as Seventh-day Adventists almost a little mini dilemma. Yes, we should call people out of Babylon, amen? And I believe we should continue preaching our distinctive message, continue to call people out. We should continue to do all of that. However, while we are doing that, we are calling them into a church that is in a Laodicean condition. Some of you here, you're proud to be here at GYC, amen? But some of you here at GYC... 
you know the church is in the Laodicean condition. Because some of us here feel that we can't even invite our friends to our home church. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm embarrassed about my church. I've got to check the preaching plan to see if I can invite someone this Sabbath or that. Oh, can't, can't. Oh, no, 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 no. You know what I'm talking about? And it's a sad indictment of who we are as a church that sometimes we can't even invite our friends or our family members who are not Adventists to the church we go to and worship every Sabbath because we say it's not good enough to invite them to. But come to GYC. Amen? It's all happening there. Within the church, the picture of the character of God, unfortunately, has been distorted somewhat. We are neither cold nor hot, but we are lukewarm. And I believe one of the uh, signs of being lukewarm is that the automatic reaction of many of us in this audience this morning, when I say that we are neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm, we say, well, I'm not cold. And we say, I'm not lukewarm either. I'm sure many of us that went through in our head, I'm not cold, and I'm not lukewarm. I come to GYC. Amen. I paid $800 to get here. On top of that, I still return my faithful tithe and offerings. And I give my support to my local church. I keep the Sabbath. I would never think of doing anything like going to a restaurant on the Sabbath day. And I don't listen to any music with syncopation. I am hot. Amen. That's what many of us think in our head. When I go to Taco Bell, I ask them to take out the cheese and the sour cream. And the guacamole. I am a good Seventh-day Adventist. Amen. And we automatically say, I'm not cold, I'm not lukewarm, but I am hot. And I believe that is one of the signs that we are actually lukewarm. I believe as a church we need help. How many of you have been to general conference sessions here? It's great to go to general conference, eh? See the whole world church gather together. And you hear the reports from South America and uh, all these different places. And they talk about how many they're baptized and all these type of things. And it's encouraging to go to the general conference and hear all these stories of the world church and how it's growing. And you hear the oft-repeated statistic that we are baptizing 3,000 people per day. But if you check the population growth in the world, there are 385,000 people born every day, 156,000 people die every day. That's 220,000 growth per day. So while the world population is growing by 230,000 per day, as a church, we are growing by 3,000 per day. Do you see how we're kind of losing pace with the rest of the world? And all of a sudden, our paltry 3,000 doesn't seem so good after all. And there's something that we need to do. I am reminded of the quotation in Great Controversy, page 464, where it says, Before the final visitation of God's judgment upon the earth, 
there will be a revival of primitive godliness as has not been seen since apostolic times. The revival before the end will be one that has not been witnessed since apostolic times. So how was it in the early apostolic church? What was the church like? In the apostolic church, it was a church where there were people there who could, could literally say, I saw Jesus. It was a church where people could say, I ate the bread he made on the hill by Galilee. It was a church where people could say, I saw the miracles of Jesus. In fact, I today am healed because Jesus healed me. It was a church full of eyewitnesses. It was a church that had seen the love of Christ in full detail right before their eyes. People could say, I've seen the Son of Man risen. I saw him after his crucifixion. I believe in the resurrection. It was a church where people could say, I saw him ascended up to heaven. Wouldn't you like to be in such a church? It was a church as well where the word of God was their foundation. It was a church that the word of God was their foundation. It was during the apostolic time period, church, that the 66 books we have in the Bible were the ones that were kind of chosen. The apostolic church not only had seen Jesus Christ, but they were a church that was based on the word of God solely. And when the commission was given to the early church to go into all the world and preach the gospel, they did not ask questions as to how much will I get paid and will my life be in danger when I go. No, the commission that drove them came from the word of God and they had to live it out in their lives. The early apostolic church was a powerful church. They were Sabbath keepers. They were believers in the spirit of prophecy. They understood the health message. And they understood the gospel commission. And in the early Christian church, I believe the theme of this conference, Acts, the revolution continues, is apt for this church. You see, the word revolution comes from a Latin word. Revolutio. It's revolution without the N. And the word revolution from its Latin form literally means to turn around. That's what it means. Turn around. Turn around. We use it to refer to massive turnarounds or changes that take place in a relatively short period of time. Unfortunately, it seems in recent years, the usage of the word revolution has been somewhat um, hijacked by what some may say negative events. So when you think of the French revolution, it doesn't bring you all warm, fuzzy feelings, right? When you think of the Russian revolution, it doesn't make you feel good, right? When you think of, say, the Cuban revolution, it doesn't make you feel all happy, right? When you think of the American revolution, how does that make you feel? I find it kind of ironic that they asked uh, 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 um, someone from England to preach in America on the theme of revolution. 
Maybe you guys need to learn how to do it properly. I don't know. <laughs> but the word revolution refers to a significant change taking place in a short space of time. And so the apostolic church was true. They went from being a church that, that, that you know, that was 12 to being a church with thousands in about a few months. Is that a revolution, yes or no? It is a revolution. It was a dramatic change in a very, very short period of time. Very short period of time. The book of Acts, the revolution, was based on the Word of God. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 4. Just going to read a few verses quickly. Acts chapter 4 and verse 4. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 4. You see, the, uh, the revolution in the early Christian church was a revolution that was based on the Word of God. Amen? And in Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, what does the Bible say here? Acts 4 and verse 4, it says, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of them was how many? 5,000. Go down to verse 31. In verse 31 it says, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken, where they assembled together, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, a few pages over. The Bible says, and the word of God increased. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, just the next page over, the Bible says, Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. And I could read through about 20 or 30 different verses throughout the book of Acts where it says over and over again, the word of God, the word of God, the word of God, the word of God. It was a revolution that was not based, listen carefully, on the uniqueness of Jewish or Greek culture. But it was a revolution that was based on the Word of God. The Word of God was the foundation of this revolution. The revolution was based on revelation. And thus, it produced transformation. You see, the picture of God is seen through His Word, amen? The title for the message today is A Finished Portrait. The picture of God is seen through His Word. When you read the Bible, as the scripture reading said, we behold in a mirror the glory of God. We're changed into the same image from glory to glory. Why? Because as we read the Bible, it does something to us. It changes our hearts. Now, that's a very generic thing to say. The Word of God reveals Jesus. We all know that. But let's narrow it a little bit closer, and it's really the teachings of the Bible, or you could even say, I know it's some, in some circles it's considered a dirty word, but you could say the doctrines of the Bible reveal the character of God. How is it we know that God is love and just and fair? We look at the different teachings and doctrines in the Bible, and as we are looking at those, we're building in our minds a picture of the character of God. In the early apostolic church, I would say, venture to say, they had an accurate picture of what the character of God looked like. But unfortunately, it was lost. In Acts 5 verse 29, the Bible says we ought to obey God rather than man. And unfortunately, as the first century went into the second century, which went into the third century, this picture of God was lost. Acts 20, verse 28 and 30, the Bible says that wolves would come into the church in sheep's clothing 
and men would arise to draw disciples away after themselves. And so this took place in, in the second and third and fourth century where men would draw people after themselves and not the word of God. And so what happened is the picture of God that is painted through the scriptures was distorted, it was marred, it was faded. The Sabbath became Sunday. Grace became license. And so on, so on, and so forth. Christianity was corrupted. The picture of God was distorted. And the world was plunged into the abyss known as the dark ages. Dark because God's word was not read. Dark because the little bit that was read and taught by the pulpits spoke of a God who was vindictive, a God who was mean, a God who was harsh, and a God who was unloving. And so the picture had been distorted and there was a need for the reformation to arise the reformation to arise to redraw resketch the picture of god martin luther rose up and he rediscovered that we're saved by grace through faith and so with a single blow he smashed the error of purgatory indulgences, sacraments, and taught once again that we serve a loving God. The Anabaptists came along and they rediscovered the truth about baptism, that God is interested not just in our birth, but he's interested in our complete whole rebirth. And one by one, different teachings were rediscovered. The revolution was underway. Amen? It was not a revolution based on Western European culture. It was not a revolution based on Anglo-Saxon, French, Swiss, or Germanic cultures. It was a revolution that was based wholly, not on societal changes that the church was adapting to, but it was a revolution that was based 100% on revelation. And thus... In the heart of Christianity, it began to produce a transformation. It was a revolution you could die for. Many, hundreds of thousands of people died for the faith they had. They were not dying for their love of a country. They were not dying to protect anything other than the word of God and their love for Jesus Christ. You know the reformers, John Wycliffe, he's one of, the, one of them that got it going. He says in the book Great Controversy, page 88, in giving the Bible to his countrymen, he did more to liberate the minds of those in his country than was obtained by the most brilliant victories on the fields of battle. John Huss was asked one time while in prison to retract what he had said. And he said, prove to me from the Holy Scriptures that I am in error and I will retract. They could not prove to him. And so he went to a martyr's death. Huss, you may have read about him in Great Controversy. He said these words. He said, it's the job of the preacher. He saw this vision or dream where he saw the, the picture of Christ. And he says it's the job of the preacher to 
paint in the minds of the listeners the, the, the image of Christ which is never going to be marred. And he said the image of Christ is going to stand from now until eternity. William Tyndale was asked, how can we distinguish between right and wrong? And he said, by nothing other than the word of God. Martin Luther. I've already mentioned him. Martin Luther was before the diet in Worms. And I love that famous quotation where he was asked, will you or will you not retract? And he answered and I will read, he says, since your most serene majesty and high mightinesses require from me a clear, simple and precise answer, I will give you one. And it is this, I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or the councils. Because it's clear as a day that they have frequently erred and contradicted each other, unless therefore I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by the clearest reasoning, unless I am persuaded by means of the passages I have quoted, and unless they thus render my conscience bound to the Word of God, I cannot and will not retract, for it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. These were men who stood and based their lives on the word of God. John Knox, when standing before Queen Mary, she said to him, you interpret the Bible this way, and they interpret it that way. Whom should I believe? And he said, believe God. He said the scriptures never contradict each other, except for those who obstinately remain ignorant. The Holy Scriptures, he said, the Holy Spirit, through the Scriptures, will explain himself. And so, Martin Luther rediscovered grace through faith. John and Charles Wesley, the founders of the Methodist Church, they discovered the importance of daily Bible study, prayer, and witnessing in the Christian experience. The Anglican Church, the Presbyterian Church, all these churches arose rediscovering some element of the picture of the face of God. It was all good but not complete. In Proverbs 4 verse 18, the Bible says, but the sun, it shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. The truth was beginning to shine in the world and it was coming bit by bit, step by step, one truth at a time. It was all good but it was not complete. The picture had not been fully repainted. Because the greatest movement yet had yet to arise. William Miller. From New York. Was studying his Bible. When he stumbled across the truth of the 2300 days. Second coming, he put them all together. And so it grew this movement called the Great Advent Movement. A movement which had hundreds of thousands of people in it, and it blossomed and grew, and eventually gave birth to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You see, the Adventist Church came along and completed the picture of the face of God. As a church... We rediscovered what you can find in Revelation chapter 1. Seven S's 
seven pillars of the Adventist church. The belief that the scriptures are the foundation of all our beliefs. Amen? 1 Timothy 4.16 says, For all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. As a church, we rediscovered the correct and complete view of the plan of salvation. Not once saved, always saved. Not forensic justification, but a correct view of justification, sanctification, and glorification that shows the love, the mercy, the grace, and the justice of God all rolled up into one. As a church, we discovered rediscovered the teaching of the second coming not one with false dates before it not one setting times not one with funny time prophecies around it no but one that taught how the heart of god yearns to be reunited with his people again we rediscovered the sabbath in its beauty amen the sanctuary message showing how the salvation of man began on the cross and continues in the heavenly sanctuary for us as God lives to make intercession for his people. The state of the dead, the spirit of prophecy, all of these were founded by our church pioneers and they made and built our church. You see, though our church was founded in America, we are in a church today that has gone to over 200 countries around this world. And the reason why it's gone to over 200 countries around this world, sorry to let you know, is not because the world wants to be American. Amen? (laughs) It's not the uniqueness of American culture that has driven our church that was founded in America. It is the Word of God that drove our church and propelled it around the world. You know, when the Adventist church was starting, it's in the uh, the late 1800s, there was a group of Christians from different denominations that came together, and they said to the Adventist church, this is the Anglicans, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, and so on, they said, listen, the world is too big, and we can't divide, you know, we can't get to the whole world, or, 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 you know, it's easier if, say, the Anglicans, we take Africa, and the Presbyterians take Asia, and the Adventists, you take here, and and so on, let's divide the world up like a map. The Adventist church, it's a very common sense approach and you would think it would make sense. The Adventist church said, no way. Though we are only a few thousand members, we have a message unique from the pen of inspiration in the book of Revelation that must go to the whole world. And sorry, we like your idea, but we're going to go on our own. And as an Adventist church, we are now the most widespread Protestant denomination that there is. Our church was founded on the mountain of evidence of the scriptures. It was not founded on a smoking gun. Amen? It was not just one text here or one text there, one text taken out of the, of the context that it was written on, but the doctrines were formed and based on a mountain of evidence in the word of God. And it's interesting. When you read Revelation chapter 3 and you read about the Laodicean church, which we are, Amen? Does Laodicea receive any praise, yes or no? No praise. Does it receive a rebuke, yes or no? Plenty of rebuke. But when you read the rebuke to Laodicea, 
as you're reading through the rebuke, it does not receive any doctrinal rebuke. Other churches, it said, you have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Other churches, it says, you have the doctrine of Balaam and Balak. Other churches, it says, you have the synagogue of Satan, or you suffer the woman Jezebel. But Laodicea, it doesn't mention any of those things to Laodicea. Why? Because the issue with Laodicea is not our message. Our message is pure. It is complete. It has redrawn the picture of the, of the face of God. It is the condition of our hearts that needs to be changed. That's why in Christ Object Lessons, page 69, don't miss this quote, Christ Object Lessons, page 69, Ellen White writes, and fitting aptly with our message this morning, she writes, when the character of Christ shall be reflected in his people, then the end will what? Come. You see, we have redrawn the picture of the image of God on paper. How many of you have been to those touristy places where they have artists that draw pictures of you? Yeah? I was in Rome once, and I was there looking at Rome, the Colosseum, the Forum, and, and all the places in the city of Rome. An amazing city to go to. And there's a place there in Rome called the Spanish Steps. I don't know why they call them Spanish Steps. But at the top, there was some artist. And I said to them, Can, you know, I'd like to have a drawing. And he says, okay, 40 euros. I said, no, 10. He said, okay, 35, I said, 10. He said, 30, I said, 10. 25, I eventually got him down to about 18. But he drew this picture of me. It wasn't one of those caricatures with big cheeks and nose and all that kind of stuff. It was just a normal drawing. But it was just a pencil drawing. There was no paint on the page. No paint on the page. It's almost if, as a church, we have drawn the outline of the face of God on paper with a pencil. But we have yet to apply the paint to the page. Because the paint on the page is not a new doctrine. The paint on the page is, as we read, when the character of Christ is, re is reflected in his people, then the Lord will come. When the drawing comes to life through the lives of you and I, living a victorious life, then it will happen. However, I believe there are some things that are blocking us. There are some things that are stopping us. There are some things preventing this from becoming a reality. Some of these are collective and some of these are personal. And some of these we see on a daily or a weekly or a Sabbath basis, week in, week out. Amongst our churches, amongst our people, amongst our, our congregations. Unfortunately, there is all too often a lack of genuine brotherly love. There is a lack of Christian courtesy amongst us as a people. And so when we talk on theological issues, when we discuss righteousness by faith, righteousness by what? When we discuss these subjects, I've sometimes seen more sparks fly discussing the righteousness of Christ 
How ironic than anything else. When there's someone who disagrees with you, how do you treat them? How do you esteem them in your mind? What is your view of them? A heretic? An apostate who's pulling our church apart? How often we're willing to shed Christian demeanor to malign, slander, or put down our brothers and sisters. Another thing I believe that is rampant in our church, that is affecting and preventing the character of God being reflected in His people, is something that affects us from church, local church department, church board, conference committee, union constituents, division, general conference, conference work, self-supporting work, supporting work, whatever you want to call it. And that's the scourge in our church of politics. Who's who? My agenda. Human politics are always based on human passions, and human passions are selfish. How many young people, how many people in general have been turned off from involvement in church or even attendance to church by the behavior of those with more experience than themselves? When sometimes we see and the facade of religious activity is stripped away and people can sometimes see the church for what it can be, a political animal. And they are turned off. And they say, if that's church, I want nothing to do with it. As a pastor, I sometimes call people up at nominating committee time and say, hi, my name is, you know, hi, this is Pastor Adam calling. Calling on behalf of the nominating committee. Oh, okay. And you always hear that pause, a bit of silence. I'm calling on behalf of the nominating committee and they're wondering if you're willing to serve in exposition. Sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no. And what often happens, and I don't think this is unique to my church, People say, I I don't mind being an assistant, but I don't want to be the leader. You know what I'm talking about. And it may be for various reasons, but oftentimes I believe the reason why they say that is this, because I know the leader sits on the church board and I don't want to be there. I don't want to see that. I don't want my view of church to be clouded by what takes place in the inner chambers. Even here at GYC, I'm sure there's politics going on, behind-the-scene drama. Another thing that affects us as a church is our motivation for service. All too often as a church, we have a desire only to be served if we are seen by others. Serving for the praise or the accolades, or not serving because we're scared of failure. I don't want to fail, therefore I won't serve. If the church in Acts had been scared of failure, they would have done nothing. The church in Acts said, we'll go and preach to a place we've never been before. We'll preach in a place where we don't even know the language. But we will still go because our commission drives us. Some of us are scared of failure. Some of us, unfortunately, are even scared of success. What if I succeed? What would I do then? I believe we need to serve God anyhow. 
Some of you will leave here and go back to your local churches and you'll plan an evangelism training seminar and you'll put 20, 30 hours into the preparation for your seminar to the church and you'll be all fired up. And, you'll then, you'll, and then on the Monday night or the Sabbath evening, when everyone's supposed to come, only two people will show up. This is what happens. Do the training anyhow. Some of you will go back to your university campuses where there's 20,000 students and you'll put signs up to say we're having a Bible study in this room at this time and you'll gather there in the room with your Bible study all prepared and only four or five students will show up. Do the Bible study anyhow. Some of you will do evangelistic series in your home church where there may be 50,000 non-Adventists in the city and you'll stand up on opening night and there'll only be 10 non-Adventists. Preach your heart out anyhow. I remember we had a peace graduate, evangelism school in England. And he went to do a campaign in a small town where there was just a few people, let alone Adventists. And I remember talking to him after opening night. I said, how did it go? He said, well, we had the member, the old farmer, he came. My mum was there, my dad was there. There was one other person, and there was two members from the community. The church only had five people. I said, preach anyway. Preach anyway. By the end of the campaign, I had five or six decisions for baptism. The attendance grew. We need a revolution that is based on the revelation of Jesus Christ. A revolution that is founded on revelation and a revolution that produces transformation. Because we need our hearts to be transformed. We need our hearts to be changed. And this revolution must be founded on the revelation of Jesus in his word in order for it to produce the transformation of character that it needs to happen. Unfortunately, all too often in our church, there's revolutions taking place that are not based on revelation. And thus they produce fragmentation. We should have revolution based on revelation when the Bible is clear as crystal. That our hearts can be transformed, that the church can be transformed and changed from top to bottom, from inside and outwards. So that the revolution can change us personally, that there can be a complete turnaround, a complete change in us. The scripture reading that we read was 2 Corinthians 3 and verse what? 18. Where it says, as we behold... In a mirror or a glass, the glory of God, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory. As we behold Christ in his word and we see his character revealed through the teachings and the stories and the doctrines of the Bible, as we see that our hearts are changed into that same image. We need the latter rain to be poured out upon us, church, to put away the things that are blocking us, politics, desire for success, the secret sins that hold us back, and the pencil drawing needs to become a full painted picture of Christ in us. The character of God needs to be reflected in us 
and then the Lord can come. The portrait needs to be finished in your life and my life. And as we're gathered here at GYC, I pray that your lives may be changed, not just another youth conference, not just a place to get more phone numbers and network with different people, but a place where we experience true revival. And the issues that we need revival on, they transcend culture and geography, the fruits of the Spirit God wants to pour upon us. Our revolution must be based on a revelation of Jesus Christ to produce the transformation of character that we need. Jesus wants to pour out his spirit just like an artist wants to paint a page. And some of us this morning as we come to church, as we come to Sabbath, we see the issues that we may be struggling with, the heart that we know that needs to be cleansed up. Yes, we know the doctrine. Yes, we know why we're a Seventh-day Adventist. Yes, we know some of these things, or maybe you don't, but you should. And you see all these things, you know that, and yet your life, our life, sometimes seems at odds or distorted from what we see on paper. And God says, I want to bring this picture to life in the life of my church. I want my people to be ready that I can come home. How many of you today want a revelation of Jesus in your life? How many of you today want a revolution in your personal life? How many of you today want to say, I want the picture of the image of Christ to be redrawn and painted in my life? That Christ can be seen in me. That you want to lay all on the altar. That you want your heart to be changed. Your inner desires to be changed. When the character of Christ is reflected in his people, then the end will come. We need our hearts to be searched. And as we come to the end of our service today, we need our hearts to be changed. We need our hearts to be refined. We need our hearts to be purified. We need Christ to come and dwell in us, that the picture can be redrawn in our lives. If it's your desire that you want Christ, character, to be redrawn in your day-to-day life, to be seen in what you do, and whatever it is you struggle with, you say, I want to put it away. I want to put it away whether it's your striving for success or whatever Adventist fame you dream of, whether it's your hatred for another brother in your church or sister, whether it's something you just hold on to and can't seem to let go and you've come forward for appeals at GYC in previous years of your church and you still can't let it go. But you want to say, Lord, change my heart today. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.